Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us into these spaces this morning. Spirit, give your illumination to this, the word of God to us, and bring us into the presence of the crucified and resurrected Christ who greets us with grace today and every day. As Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, would you be glorified in this ancient exercise of the reading and preaching of your scriptures And son, would we bow the knees to you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So like I said a moment ago, we're talking about confession of sin. What do you think about that? Either in general or as part of our worship service, which we do every week, and as our liturgists do every week, Amy gave a great introduction and explanation for why we do it, But still, what's your take on that part of the worship service or on that practice? I think for a lot of us, confessing sin or confession of sin, it can be either rote or worse. Those are the two possible categories for it, rote. We do it every week here at Liberty Church Collingswood. We do it one week, we do it the next, we do it the next And it doesn't have to be drab, again, Amy said that, but just the sheer repetition of it can kind of get a little formulaic after a while, can't it? And if you're new to Liberty Church Collingswood, here's a spoiler alert. Did you see how we had in our order of worship words of pardon in the worship folder? That happens every week. Every week. 
we do the same thing. And so it's not like we hook up our laser lights and smoke machines so that, wow, again, there are words of pardon after a confession of sin. I can't believe it. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. No, instead, it's just something that we do week after week after week. Wrote, or worse, I've mentioned on Sunday mornings here at Liberty Collingswood, if you know Monty Python and the Holy Grail, do you remember the monks towards the beginning that are chanting confession? P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona Pachis Requiem. And then what do they do? They have planks, and they hit themselves with boards. That's kind of weird, and that's making fun of the fact that confession of sin can seem to be this incredibly morose, weird thing. But we keep doing it week after week after week. And let's not gloss over too quickly the fact that it does sort of seem weird. Put yourself in these shoes if this isn't where you are specifically. Picture yourself as a regularly church-going Christian and parent of elementary school kids or younger, or a little bit older. What would your reaction be if kid would come home from school, hey, how was your day, and kid says, it's pretty good, including in some challenging ways, because there is either this other kid or this teacher that told me that I need to repent of this specific sin. What would you think about that? Now, part of me, and I would like to think this is the core Christian part of me would think to myself, okay, confession, repentance of sin is good. And if that gospel dynamic is at work in the life of my child, that's really great. It really was a good day at school. But then another part of me, and this would be the, you know, mama bear, daddy bear sort of thing going, who said that to you? And tell me exactly what they said which I think illustrates when it gets real, confession of sin and repentance is actually an incredibly dicey thing. But here's the thing from the perspective of the scriptures. Confession of sin is not a bad thing. And in fact, the opposite. Not confessing sin. That's the bad thing. That's where the trouble starts. Because confessing sin enables us to name all the stuff that's bad for us anyway. To illustrate, here's a story. True story. Speaking of elementary school again, when one of my kids was a lot younger, and especially in elementary school, this was the case at least for my wife Emily and me, you get to know a lot of parents because you're, you're at birthday parties and you're rubbing elbows at this event and this event, and at least in our case, we tried to invest in relationships with these other parents because we see them all the time anyway. We were not quite prepared for friend groups to shift starting in middle school, so there may or may not have been conversations at home between parent and child. Hey, could you not switch your friend groups because we've invested a lot in this specific group of parents of these specific kids, and this would be time and effort down the drain. That may have happened. So, but there was one dad... (coughs) And, you know, small school, not in the gossipy way, but it just became known that this dad was married and his wife had had an affair. And that you know, blew up the marriage. They were living apart from each other right now. And it was really hard for the dad. And it's one of those things where if you're f- 
friendly but not super close friends, when somebody goes through a tragedy, that, that's an inflection point for any type of like acquaintance relationship where either you name it and go deeper or you don't know what to do and you distance. So picking up a kid from school, I said to, to this guy, hey, I know we're not super close, but it would feel weird for me not to acknowledge the fact that I've heard this is going on in your life. I'm sure you have a lot of listening ears, but if you want to grab a coffee or grab a beer, put me on the list. And he, he said, that conversation, actually, it would be great if we could get together. I can't tell you how many people have ghosted me since news came out about what my wife did. So we went to Irish Mile, RIP, down the street here on Haddon Avenue. And I said, hey, how you doing? Tell me whatever you want to tell me. He said, I'm not doing well. My wife has left me. She wants a divorce. And all of her friends and some of my friends are saying that I should be really okay about this because she's pursuing her truth. She's on a different journey than I am. And who am I to stand in the way of her happiness? But he said at the same time, I haven't been a perfect husband. I know that. I've said that. But still, I feel like I've been wronged. And that's just kind of dangling out there. At that point in the conversation, I said, hey, and this person wasn't religious, didn't go to church. Hey, do you mind if I talk about sin? And he was like, at first, or my thought was, he's going to get really weirded out by that. But he was in such a low place that I could have told him anything. He's like, you can talk about, buddy, anything you want right now, because I, I, I just got nothing left. He said, sure. And I said, for me as a Christian, sin can sound a little weird to talk about, but at the same time, it gives us a vocabulary of how to talk about wrongdoing, yes, between us and God, but then also between us and other people. And it's really helpful to name stuff. And so I said, here, for my Christian framework is what's going on. Wrong has occurred in your marriage. And I said to my friend, now, from, my, from what I hear, yes, you have wronged her in some ways, and you've confessed those things. You've talked about it. And he said, yes, I have. I said, well, you have confessed sin to your wife. And at least from what I'm hearing for you, and I understand that in marriages there's always two sides to every story. I was just hearing one. But for your wife's part, and he didn't even let me finish. He said, she hasn't confessed anything. And she's just saying she's right in every way to do everything that she's done. I said, well, on this taxonomy here, she is not confessing sin, her sin, to you. And that's why you feel wronged. And that's why you don't feel whole right now. Long pause. He pounded the bar table and said, you're right. I've been sinned against. And I feel better. Just to be able to name it. At that point, the bartender was walking by and he grabbed the bartender and he said, I feel sinned against. And that's actually a good thing. That's, and the bartender said, you're done for the, for, for the night. I'm not serving you anymore. But it was a moment of clarity for him. And so similarly here at Liberty Collingswood, it, yes, it can be wrote week after week after week. We give you an opportunity to come clean, to own it communally before God, to name it, and then also to receive forgiveness and to receive grace. 
And that's why we can confess in the first place. So talking about confession of sin, liturgically and otherwise in three parts from here, what sin does to us, what grace does for us, and then some tips. What sin does to us, what grace does for us, and then some tips about confessing sin. Here we go. And I understand, sin, not a popular phrase, not a popular concept, but I would come back and say instead, if we don't have a concept of sin, real transgression, real evil, how else do we make sense of our world? How else do we do it? And many contemporary writers, that at least as far as I know, who are not people of faith, they'll get close to it, but then back off. So one contemporary writer, my perception of the human animal is as an extremely dangerous predator. What can we say about human beings, either contemporaneous, contemporaneous or historically? We are dangerous predators. Or one of my favorite current writers in fiction, Zadie Smith, an English author said it this way at one point, only the willfully blind could ignore that the history of human existence is simultaneously the history of pain. History of our existence is a history of pain, of brutality, murder, mass extinction, every form of venality and cyclical horror. No land is free of it. No people are without their blood stain. No tribe entirely innocent. So here's an author saying, Everybody is stained by blood. But then we have a reluctance at the same time to call it sin. And we're at a point where we are of a strange double mind in a lot of ways. A strange double mind. Where on one hand, it's messaged to us in so many different ways. And in some ways, this is what we tell our kids, and it's good, although it has limits as we come back to the scriptures. You're awesome. You're really, really good. You're great all the time. Don't let anybody tell you differently. But if that's the only message with no qualifications, and there's no room for what exists in our human hearts as far as wrongdoing and sin, <clears throat> we are setting people up to be very fragile. You're only awesome all the time. But then in our heart of hearts, but I'm not. What do I do with that? Either I buy the lie that I'm only awesome all the time or I become shattered when I'm shocked to find that sometimes I'm not. And to me, it's the Holy Scriptures that strikes that balance that we all need that I think confirms reality to us again. It's always got to be both. We are created in the image of God, incredibly noble, incredibly beautiful by virtue of that creation, and we're broken in sin. We need both. And when we lose either one, that's when problems start. Who is man, the scriptures say, that you are mindful of him. You've made him a little lower, all of humanity, than the angels. But then we're really messed up. And there are entire worldviews, ideologies, politically and otherwise, that don't keep both of those things balanced and either end up with, we're the only ones that are awesome and everybody else is horrible, or vice versa. The gears grind. But the scriptures say it's both. And David, this is a psalm of King David in the Old Testament scriptures, walks through this journey of both. This journey of confession of sin 
which is not a dire, dour, hopeless journey, but one that's life-giving and joyous. At the very beginning, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed sounds like a church word. It is. It's a Bible word. Blessed. Favor under God the Most High objectively, but then also subjectively. You can experience it. And some translations, whether you translate it one way or another, capture more of the objective. Blessed in English, yeah, there's something coming upon you. Other translators opt for the more subjective dimension. Happy. Some translators say, happy under God as a person. Or a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I like what it kind of gets at a little bit. Providentially lucky. You're in a good flow under God when you're living in a state of forgiveness of sins under him. But then in the next couple of verses, David narrates the lived effects of sin in his life. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So it makes us groan. It impoverishes us. It undoes us. And is all of this to say, well, that's why God hates us? No. God is against our sin out of love for us, not hatred for us. God is a God of beauty, of justice, of wholeness. And sin is that thing that messes it up. A few years ago, I wrote a book by a scholar named Fleming Rutledge called The Crucifixion. A lot of talk about sin in that book, and she says there, sin is not just missing the mark, as has often been taught. Sin is an active power hostile to human beings. Sin exhausts us. Sin disfigures us. And it's offensive to a holy God, objectively. All of those things are true. God is holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's good through and through and through. And that means that God in his holiness, the Bible teaches, is both the source and the standard of goodness, beauty, and truth. I think we're at a cultural moment when we prefer to have one but not the other. God is source of love, beauty, and truth. That sounds okay, but when we talk about a standard, when we can either meet it or not, and we're accountable for it, that's where it's like, ah, this gets into dicier territory for us, which I get, but the Bible says it's actually a package deal. And so to get more practical, for you, what are yours? What are yours? What might you name as sin? It could be flagrant or furtive. Everybody knows or nobody knows, except maybe you, but then again, except maybe not. Every week at Liberty Collingswood is your opportunity to get a wake-up call where we hit that confession of sin again, to own it, to come clean. And if you don't name it, you're not going to feel relief. You're not going to feel free. How many times have you been messing up, whether you're using the word sin or not, and you finally confess it? 
whether you finally name it to God or you finally name it to other people. And at least sometimes we feel relief. Okay, now it's known. Now it's out there. Now we can get to work and start chipping away at this mess. And here's something that might seem counterintuitive, but try this on. From a certain perspective, the confession of sin segment of our worship service could be the most accessible part of an entire Sunday morning for you. In this way, what if you feel far from God? What if you're not even sure that God is there? Call to worship. I don't know about that. Singing songs of praise to God. I don't know if I'm there. Confessing your junk. Okay. I can do that. That feels like something close to home. And at least for some of us, a lot of the time, and that's me, but for a lot of us, at least some of the time, confession of sin here on Sunday morning grabs you, or at least I hope it does, to say, okay, here we go. So that's what sin does to us. What about grace? What can grace do for us? The turn, the change in perspective of this psalm occurs in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David was being dried up. He's mourning. He's groaning. We've had some hot days. Think of plants that you can see that have been shriveling up. That's what the sin has been doing. But then all of a sudden, a sudden rain. Relief. David confesses his sin. Some of you know the story of the prodigal son. It's the central story of the free book that we offer to people. Jesus tells that story in the Gospels, where the prodigal son, if you know a little bit about it, sins flagrantly. Asks ahead of time for the father's inheritance, even though the father hasn't died yet. Deeply offensive to the father and to others in that culture. Runs off, prodigal son, good South Jersey farm boy. Runs into Philly. Philly not enough. Goes to New York. Sins it up. But then says, this is not what I need to be doing. This is not giving life to me. I'm going to go back to my father. And there's that phrase in the old translations, he came to himself. He hit bottom. That's what the prodigal son does before he can turn. Or if you've struggled with addiction yourself or know people that have, that rock bottom moment is really hard, but it's constructive if it's a point of recognition. And it's no coincidence. And I understand that for some people, 12-step programs work really well. It has some critics. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But not a coincidence that the first step is where you own it. Hi, I'm Jim, and I'm a whatever it is. That's where you start to say, okay, it's been named. It's been owned. It's been confessed. We can build on this starting right now. That's what David does, taking the blame, not shifting, but owning. But then on the father's side, the living Lord loves to and longs to forgive you again and again and again and again and again. Our God in Jesus Christ 
is never a reluctant forgiver. But instead, this is my jam. I love to do this. Yes, let me forgive you again. Think of the story of the prodigal son again, where the prodigal comes to the end of himself, stumbles back in a pile of filth towards the father, hesitates, am I going to be accepted? I don't know how strongly I should approach because I'm so ashamed of everything. But it's the father who runs. The prodigal son stumbles shamefully, hesitantly, but the father runs and is so incredibly eager to forgive. I can't wait to forgive my boy who's come back. Even at the expense of the father bringing shame on himself, The story is such that when the father runs, it's probably a big outfit. Everybody knows that the son has already brought shame on the father, and it would be shameful again for the father to accept the son back. Also running, you've got to gather up your skirt or your train. This is before the days of comfortable athleisure, where you can do anything that you want in any type of garment. Big shame at this point, but bring it on me. The Father longs to forgive. And that's what the cross of Jesus is all about. The longing of the Father to forgive is anchored in the crucifixion of the Son. The Father longing to forgive is not because as you come to him in Jesus, you don't catch him on a good day, but it's because the Father has a good Son that paid the penalty for your and my sin on the cross so that you can be completely free of it. And Jesus embodies David in verses 3 and 4, not because of Jesus' own sin, but because of yours and mine, where because of the sin of others, on the cross perhaps, his bones wasted away, Jesus was groaning, the hand of a holy father was upon him. And that's where he died and rose again. And so it's actually true, and here at Liberty Collingswood, we don't have the laser lights and the smoke machine because we rent this place, but if by God's grace we buy, those things don't go off. But it's still a party in heaven, I think, around the world every Lord's Day, when forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ is announced again. And we can flip it around the other way. If you don't believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, I can't think of a really good reason as to why you should confess anything. You're owning it before God and other people, but you also have to pay for it. Who's going to take care of that bill? What's the guarantee when you confess something real and deep to somebody else, besides grace in Jesus, that you're not going to be beaten up for it for the rest of your life? Jesus cuts the cord of my weaponizing confession of sin back against other people. I'm commanded not to do that. How many of you have had that happen when confession brings weaponization against you? The cross gets in the way of that. Fleming Rutledge one more time says this. The grace of God prepared, and this is the reflection quote at the beginning of the worship folder. It's, it's not, it doesn't trip off the tongue, but to me it's really important. The grace of God prepares the way for the confession of sin, is present in the confession, and even before the confession is made, already has worked the restoration of which the confession is not the cause, but the sign. 
We confess sin in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. So in terms of liturgical sequence, we confess our sin, then the assurance of pardon comes. But in terms of theological sequence, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection comes first. I'm not going to actually do this, this because to tinker with hundreds old, millennia old ancient liturgy, which we use here on Sunday morning, would just make people go crazy. You jump through the stained glass windows because it's out of order. But in my heart of hearts, at least once, I want to put the words of pardon before the confession of sin. Because that's the order, theologically. Jesus is crucified and resurrected. In light of that gift, where God's holiness and justice and power and love and grace are all affirmed all at once in the cross, now we confess. And apart from the light of the cross, I'm going to be tempted to stay in the dark. But instead, David, in light of forgiveness here in the psalm, says, let's get a move on. Verses 8 to 10. I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, I realize that we live in the age of cute, cute pet videos on social media, which is fine. But then on the other hand, if any of you have farmer, farmer roots, I don't know if this is literally true. There, there's, there's a reason that farmers are not as into cute animal videos, even though farmers love their animals just like everybody else. Farmers have a better idea that animals are big and dumb. They get in, you need them, but they get in the way of your productivity all the time. Unconfessed sin is like being a big and dumb animal. Don't be a big and dumb animal. Point number three. Tips. Who needs segues? For confessing sin. What sin does to us, what grace does for us, this is how we should confess. Regularly, communally, specifically, and joyfully. Regularly, communally, specifically, and joyfully. Come here regularly at Liberty Collingswood to get a head start on your confession for the week. And also, retrospectively, to tie a bow on how you've messed up for the week that's just passed and name that stuff. And yes, the downside of doing it every week is that it can be rote, but the upside is it builds your spiritual muscle memory. I know an older pastor who told the story. I forget if it was actually about himself or apocryphal. But he was in the habit of doing confession of sin, words of pardon every week. And after the words of pardon, whatever it was, he would do it himself. He would quote from the prophet Isaiah before Jesus, after the assurance of pardon, and say, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So there was a snarky middle schooler or a high schooler that came up to the pastor one Sunday, if you can imagine a snarky and sarcastic middle schooler and high schooler, said, Pastor, why do you say every week after the assurance of pardon, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever? And the story goes, the pastor replied, exactly. 
Look at what you just did. You repeated that verse back to me. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. That's why I say it. So that the repetition can go deep inside of you. That's what spiritual muscle memory is. To build in the rhythm. And if you're not in the habit, think about the holiness of God. Read the Bible for that. Regularly, also communally. <clears throat> we do lots of things communally, even if you don't know it. I'm going to be preaching this coming Sunday. Matt Harmon from Liberty Mainline is going to be here. I'm going to be preaching this sermon at Liberty Mainline. I'm going to make fun of Pennsylvanians there and say, I've never been to the Pennsylvania shore, but the Jersey shore is pretty good. But more and more, Jersey shore or otherwise, I'm, I'm always taken aback is too strong, bemused by the number of people that take beach selfies of themselves or have other people do it for social media purposes on, on, on the beach. It used to be just models. Now it's not. So there, 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 there are plenty of guys and girls that go out of their way to suck up and puff out various body parts so that you can get the perfect beach shot. And if, if you're into that, that, if you do that, that's fine. I, I don't mean to, to pick on that specifically. But what does that say about us culturally? where there's this impulse, including visually at a surface level, to always make ourselves a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better appearance-wise than we actually are to other people. Contrast that with the weekly mundane rhythm around the world throughout the ages in various contexts, from church sanctuaries to basements to velds to verandas, where people in Jesus Christ gather around the word of God and confess their sins together. Regular, unsexy people confessing their regular, unsexy junk before a holy God together. That's a different kind of communal solidarity. What's a more hopeful vision of the future of humanity? On the surface, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. But broken men and women and boys and girls, under a holy and merciful God, saying we are not all that and we need mercy form us into being people of mercy if you're somebody that struggles with intimacy with other people and i need to be careful in saying this sometimes oversharing is actually a thing but one of the ways that you can gain intimacy with other people is confessing hey people are never honest with me are you honest with other people one of the ways to do that is to be more transparent about our sin, about what's wrong inside of us. So regularly, communally, and also specifically. I'm a sinner in general, and so are you. I'm a sinner specifically, and so are you. And we need to confess both. If you never get specific about where you're messing up, then you're stuck in the land of generalities, and any specific confession of sin or apology becomes a faux-pology. It's not real. Sometimes when I talk to couples that are in marriage distress, and they're not really ready to confess to one another, sometimes the husband or wife will say, okay, sure, I'll confess. I'll confess sin. I've messed up. I'll do it right now. <coughs> because you have been such a horrible, frigid, judgmental, uncaring, non-listening, narcissistic, 
egotistical, self-absorbed, mean and nasty spouse, which has given me no choice but to withdraw and fight fire with fire, I'm sorry. That's a faux-fashion, not a confession. But when you can actually get specific, then you're in business. And here's a sub-tip here, too. If you're sitting here regularly on a Sunday morning, and that time of silent confession comes, and nothing comes to mind, you're just blanking out, that means you're not trying. That means you're phoning it in, and so am I when that happens to me. You either are not impressed by the holiness of God enough, you don't know what's going on in your own life, but instead zoom in so that you can actually be thankful for real forgiveness for real sins. That makes a huge difference. And finally, joyfully. David, in the middle of this psalm, summons the congregation. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then finally with joy, which again was what Amy was talking about this morning. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you don't know better, oh yeah, what kind of psalm ends for David with, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, maybe it's a psalm of David that relates to victory or to God's righteousness or to how God's created all things and majesty. Sure, those occur, but here in Psalm 32, it's a psalm of confession of sin that ends in joy because of what Jesus has done. I think I mentioned last week, David was a great king, but also a big sinner, Bathsheba and otherwise. And the same David that confesses with joy here also says, against you, you only have I sinned. Surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me at birth. But David knows the grace of his God, which is fulfilled in the greater David, Jesus Christ. And only in him can we find that relief, that forgiveness, that wholeness as we confess. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Yeah. The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.